0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Welcome to Humanities West at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Um, I'd like to welcome our live stream audience and our live audience here in San Francisco today. And I'd also like to welcome those of you who watch this video later. Um, Humanities West is an organization that has been in San Francisco for almost 40 years. Commonwealth Club has been in San Francisco for almost 120 years. And uh, we are working together during the pandemic to keep Humanities West programs available to the public. Um, today, we had planned this program out four years ago, um, and uh, it's not coming off exactly the same as we'd planned it. <laughs> but we're going to bring you a lot of information about the Taj Mahal and about the uh, Mughal Empire family that was responsible for it, Shah Jahan and his family. Uh, so let me say a little bit first about the Taj Mahal. So you can see a picture of it, uh, and I'm, everybody's very familiar with it. Uh, the Taj Mahal is one of those wonders of the world, as they call them, um, which cannot disappoint. No matter how extreme the praise is, if you go there in person, you're still shocked by how absolutely stunningly beautiful it is, and also The detail, right down to the detail, it's huge, but right down to the details, it was done so precisely. Um, It reminds me that, you know, we are, I mean, Shah Jahan was rich. He was extremely rich. Probably the richest man in the world at the time, or close. Um, Certainly not anywhere near as rich as the people that we have today who are rich. We probably have a thousand people who are richer than he is, but we don't seem to build anything like this. You know, we build a lot of glass towers. I, mean, I understand that we, we build rockets to, to, the, uh, you know, to, to go out into space if you're rich, right? But, but we don't really build that kind of thing. And I, I, I wanted to put in a plug here uh, to all the billionaires in the audience. <laughs> uh, that it would be really great, I think, to, to, to think about using some of your money to make something that will last for thousands of years and be a, a, something that reminds people about this high-tech civilization uh, that we created uh, in the 21st century. And I was thinking, you know, that laser art should go in that direction. We should get a big granite cube, you know, make a cube out of granite, a big one, and, and make it into a Rosetta Stone with a hundred languages on it, carve it all out with, with lasers. It shouldn't be too hard. We don't have to, we don't have to hire, you know... Thousands of people, uh, as was done for the Taj Mahal. We just have to have good programmers, and uh, we know we have lots of those. Uh, so, something like that. Or maybe, you know, maybe uh, if you're a Platonic you know, fan, have the five Platonic solids, you know, all carved inside of a sphere and then etched pi, you know, just the, the numbers of pi all around it going on for as long as we can. Something like that. That we could leave behind. So just, just an idea for, as I said, for the billionaires in the crowd. Uh, so, because what, what would happen if, you know, a thousand years from now, it's still just the Great Wall of China, the pyramids, you know, the Taj Mahal. It, that's what's left. And there's nothing. I know that our, our downtown skyscrapers are not going to still be here. So, that, just one idea. So, now let's talk about Shah Jahan for a little while. So Shah Jahan, um, well, he's considered by some to be the perfect Muslim emperor uh, in the Mughal Empire. Uh, I say Mughal Empire. I was, I, I've been saying Mughal my, my whole life um, whenever I, after I read about it. I was, uh, because that's the way I always thought it was. And I said it the other day, and my daughter said, are you sure that's how it's pronounced? <laughs> and I said, well, maybe not. Uh, and yeah, and, and so... I mean, sometimes it's written M-O-G-U-L, so Mogul, uh, and that is pronounced Mogul. Um, but that sounds too much like the billionaires I was just talking about. So, so we'll go with Mughal. Um But I listened. She said, well, listen on the Internet and see how it's pronounced. And the first one I pulled up, it said Muggle. <laughs> and I thought, why is Harry Potter involved in this empire? You know. But it turned out that that's the British pronunciation of M- Mughal. Um, and that the Americans say Mughal, and that the Brits say Muggle. And I think we just figured out where J.K. Rowling got that word from. Uh, so anyway, for the Brits, it's the Muggle Empire. Um, and I don't know if that's because the, the Mughal, you know, spend a lot of time on, on their gardens and their houses and, <laughs> and, and not on magic, but, but maybe not. Um, so we are, uh, Shah Jahan, uh, to go back to, to him uh, Shah Jahan lived the kind of usual life of of a really rich prince. His name was Prince Karam um, until he became the Shah, and then it was Shah Jahan. His father was Jahangir, and his uh, grandfather was Akbar, who you probably uh, some of you have heard of him. Um, and in a way, he was a little like... Uh, the Buddha, you know, I mean, the Buddha was, the Gautama Buddha, this is, uh, was a prince in a very rich family, and then eventually he figured out that, that life uh, had suffering in it and death, and he wanted to go out and figure it out, and he left all that life behind. Well, Shah Jahan did not do that, neither did, I mean, as Prince Kram did. As a matter of fact, at such a young age, you know, be, first of all, he got engaged to Mumtaz Mahal, who the Taj Mahal is named after, it's his... Uh, favorite wife he he was a very devoted husband by the way as unusual maybe for the very devoted husband and that's how he's known but he was devoted to all of his wives so um but he his favorite was mumtaz mahal and uh he but and, and i i say that seriously do because he he made a lot of political alliances uh marriages political alliance marriage which was the the, the way to go at the time when you were the prince of a, of the mughal empire um, because, as I'll, I'll show later on, um, there were other big empires that were also Islamic right next to the Mughal Empire. Um, there the, was the Persian one, and then there was the Ottoman Empire. And the, those three Islamic empires controlled most of the land all the way from um, where Greece is all the way uh, through India. Um, and they controlled it for hundreds of years, basically. So, uh, and they intermarried. And they intermarried in their own families, too. So he had met Mumtaz Mahal uh, when when she was 14, he was 15, something like that. She had gotten a reputation for an uh, outrageous personality of some kind. Uh, She was very, uh, very nice and everything, but she was outspoken in addition, and that was a little unusual. And uh, he liked that about her. And so they got engaged when they were 14 and 15 years old. Um, they showed a lot of restraint. They didn't get married until they were 19 and 20. Um, uh, in the meantime, he got married once or twice. It's not completely clear uh, to other wives uh, for political reasons. He had to be connected to somebody else. But she was not unconnected either. She was the niece of the empress. So the, the, the one of the other wives of his father, she was the niece of. So that would probably make him, her his cousin. It's c- certainly related in some way. So in any case, they, they got married at 19 and 20. Um, they had 14 children before she passed away at age 38. Um, she passed away in childbirth uh, with the 14th child. Um, only seven of those children uh, made it to adulthood. Uh, but those seven children were definitely involved in the whole story that, I'll, that we'll be telling later on about what went down in this empire. Um, Because one of the problems of not having primogeniture, the the idea that the oldest one wins, is that there is a fight every time somebody had to succeed to the throne. And when Shah Jahan had to succeed to the throne, or or when it was his time when his father died, there also was a fight for the... Shah Jahan, uh, that's Prince Karam at the time, he was not the oldest uh, son or anything. I think he was the third son. Um, and he had already gotten in trouble with his father because when he was, well, I think, 1622, uh, in his late 20s, 28 or so, like 1622, he um, decided he wanted to be the Shah a little earlier and was kind of getting tired of waiting for his father. Um, and he, as I said, he was in his 20s, you know, I'm sure Prince Charles reads that and says, <laughs> 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 you, you, you impatient young man, you... Um, so, but, but uh, he went out and he, he totally failed at, at raising, uh, a, you know, a, a revolt against his father. But, you know, after a couple of years, his father, you know, led him back into the fold again. And then when his father died, a couple of years after that, uh, Shah Jahan was 36 years old and he won the succession race. Some of his brothers died, so on and so forth. I don't know all the details. Um, but he won the succession race because he got the support of the emperor's brother, I mean, the, the empress's brother, the empress who was the aunt of his wife. So it's very clear that that family wanted, I mean, they, they had their whole family by then, and she, they had you know their four sons that were all you know lined up to take over the throne. So I'm sure that that family realized that if, if whether they liked him or not, that if they got him into, into power, that their bloodline would be uh, ruling the empire somehow that makes people feel good about themselves. <laughs> so, um, so that's the basic There's a lot more details. But uh, one of the things to know about Shah Jahan was that he was extremely fond of architecture, as, as uh, Professor Catherine Asher will be uh, talking about in just a little while. He not only built the Taj Mahal, he had lots and lots of things built. Now, I don't mean he did it by himself. Um, he hired lots of people to do it. But they, he built... Many, many things. In fact, he, he started uh, the city of Delhi um, about 20 years into his reign, um, and he called it Shah Jahanabad. You know, so it's like Leningrad, you know. So, so you, somehow the name has to be there. So um, he did that. He was uh, really fond, though, as some, some uh, you know emperors are, some aren't. He was very fond of all the arts. He supported... Literary arts. He uh, supported calligraphy. He supported uh, jewelry. If you you know all the stories about exotic maharajas and all their gold and jewelry, it probably comes down to this group of people. Because uh, I'll tell a story a little bit later about how much jewelry and gold and diamonds and everything they used to carry around with them when they traveled from one place to the other. Um, Probably not a really good idea. Uh, So they, the, the, the whole Mughal empire ruled for hundreds of years and his son, Shah Jahan's son, uh, expanded it to about the, almost the entire Indian subcontinent. So big thing, at that time under his son, it had one quarter of the GNP of the entire world. So just so people have an idea. And at the time, 160 million people, we're talking about 400 years ago or so, uh, 160 million people in the empire. So we're talking big. In, in fact, it was the biggest at the time. It just passed the Qing Dynasty uh, uh, running in China at the time. Now, we're talking about 1609. We know from a European-centric point of view, we're always thinking about the Spanish Empire and the, you know all the things that we did. There, we had a speaker in here at the Commonwealth Club a while ago, and he said the only reason that the Europeans discovered America was because they didn't have a stable organization in a stable situation. There were all these Islamic three Islamic empires and the Chinese empire that were all the stable, rich empires. The Europeans were were the uh, hungry group. And that's why they went out and did all those things. So to give that perspective, let's go to one of the top cultures uh, of the time in the 1600s and hear all about them and to see the absolutely beautiful art they made. Just one more reminder to the billionaires one thing we could do here you know to show off our civilization uh, but maybe not so many diamonds so professor Catherine asher is going to speak to us tonight she comes directly from minnesota she is i'm going to give you her background she's the professor emerita at the department of art history the university of minnesota she's a specialist in indian muslim and mughal dynasty art and architecture she's the author of the architecture of mughal india india before europe Delhi's tube complex, the Minar Mosque in Morali, and she edited a volume of perceptions of South Asia's visual past. Now, we also expected to have a special treat from you all the way from India, um, but two days ago that speaker came down ill and she's unable to present tonight. That's Gulfushan Khan. She's the chair of the Department of History at Aligarh Muslim University in Aligarh, India. That's just 90 kilometers north of Agra. Um, so when she became ill, at the last minute, we were not able to find a replacement, but we were able to find a substitute. Couldn't replace her expertise. But at the last minute, we found a substitute who I'll introduce after Catherine is done. So Catherine Asher, Professor Catherine Asher, will be giving us the information about the Taj Mahal and its, its, the artistic achievements that are involved with it. Thank you very much for joining us, uh, Professor Asher.
0: Um, hello, and thank you so much for inviting me to do this. It's a real pleasure. Um, uh, George has already given you some background, some very interesting background on the Taj. I am going to speak to you specifically about the Taj that is in the city of Agra in India That was built between 1632 and 47 for the very queen um, whom he just discussed, Mumtaz Mahal was his favorite wife who died in 1631. Before I really start talking about it, I just want to mention that while we call this famous white marble building the Taj Mahal, and it had a nickname, the Taj Mahal, early, early on in its construction, that it has an official name. And the official name is the Illumined Tomb. And I'll come back to that. In a bit later Uh, just to remind you that Shah Jahan is the patron Um, he has just been told you is a uh, a, a, an enormous figure I'll give you some more details on him but this portrait that we see of him standing on a globe um, his name literally means king of the world with a halo around his head showing what is understood by Mughal emperors, that is that they are semi-divine. And he is literally crowned by angels who are carrying a crown to crown him from heaven. In other words, what we have with this emperor is an emperor who sees himself as not simply a territorial ruler, but someone who is... um, commanding both the heavens and the earth. Again, we'll come back to that. As mentioned, um, the Mughal dynasty descends not only from Genghis Khan, but very specifically from the great warlord Timur. Timur, who by his death in 1605, literally commanded a territory that went from Um, the Black Sea of Turkey all the way to the Indian subcontinent and certainly up through Central Asia. Timur was, um, as I said, he was famous for his territorial control and under his sons the Timurids became world famous. They became the most exquisite patrons of paintings. You see here a page from a Timurid manuscript of the Emperor Timur holding an an audience from his great Book book of Victory to monumental architecture. Uh, The Timurids, for example, had an emphasis on soaring buildings, domes, minarets, and exquisite interiors and these are the very things that deeply influence the um, developments that we're going to see under the Mughals. The first Mughal was a, a Central Asian prince. He actually came from what is today modern Uzbekistan, um, and he ruled for only a short while, from 1526 to 30 Here we see a posthumous portrait of him. And among the things that this short-lived emperor did, aside from establishing Mughal rule in India, the Mughals really should be called Timurids. They're actually descendants of Timur. Um, But they took on the name, they they were given the name Mughal, they never would have called themselves Mughals, um, by of the people of India. Babur was famous for constructing gardens. Now, gardens might seem like a somewhat frivolous pursuit, Mm -hmm. but the Emperor Babur considered himself as a master gardener as he saw his ability to control and temper what he called unruly Hindustan mm-hmm. as literally a metaphor for his ability, as I said, to to be a good, gov- to, to, to govern well. The garden that you see on the screen is actually a slightly later painting, but it shows us what these gardens look like that Babur constructed. They were four part gardens that were divided by um, that divided land symmetrically, parterres, by water channels. And they were terraced, as you can see from the picture. This conti- The only garden that survives in India um, from Babur's reign is one that is in a place called Rajasthan. It's about, let's say, <clears throat> 100 miles south of where the Taj Mahal is today, This garden is somewhat unusual in that it's cut from the living rock, as you can see. But you can see from my upper uh, left-hand image that it was also a terraced garden. These gardens, these gardens that Babur built, are going to set the stage for the kind of architecture, the the landscape architecture, that we're going to see with future Mogul tombs. Um, did I go backwards? Just a minute. Um, and so too, his tomb, Babur's tomb, which is in Kabul, was also set in a large terraced garden, just to give you an idea of what a monumental scope would look like. Babur is succeeded by his son Humayun, who only rules for about 10 years. And he's ousted, basically kicked out of India, from an Afghan upstart whose name is Sher-Shah Sur. Now, Sher-Shah was a remarkable ruler, but for the purposes of this presentation, I'm going to just focus on the tomb that he constructed himself. You can see it here. It's in eastern India. It dates to 1545. And at the time of its construction, it was the largest tomb in the entire Indian subcontinent. It was an octagonal tomb built of multi-tiers that you can see here. And it was set in the middle of an artificial body of water, an artificial lake. It was definitely intended to evoke the waters of paradise. We know that from an inscription on the inside of the tomb. Well, Sher Shah was not a mogul. In fact, he was a mogul. He was a mogul noble who rebelled against the nobles. And so the moguls disliked him. He was in many ways a kind of model because his model of governance, his coinage, his land um, um, measurement all served as models for the next ruler. The, well, yes, basically the next ruler. So, one of the goals that we're going to see is that the Mughal rulers wish to build tombs that outsized that of Sher Shah's that you see here. Humayun, remember who's been basically kicked out of India for a while, is able to return to India in 1555, but sadly, He only rules for one year before falling to death in his library that you see on the screen here. He then is succeeded by his son, um, Akbar. And Akbar is probably the most famous of the Mughal rulers. He rules for nearly 15 years, from, as you can see, 1556 to 1605. And it is Akbar who basically brings the mobile state to um, its maturity, who basically is able to create a sound sort of concept of state, which includes um, a notion of universal toleration among the various religious groups and ethnic groups of the Indian subcontinent, as well as the belief that the Mughal ruler is semi-divine. The only, Akbar is a prolific builder, but the only thing that we'll look at today is the tomb that he builds for his father, Humayun, in the city of Delhi. At that point, Delhi is the Mughal capital. The tomb is built over a period of years um, from about the death of Humayun in 1556, and it's completed by 1571. We know the name of the architects, um, which are Mirid Said Gias and his son, and they're both from Bukhara, that is today in modern Uzbekistan. And these two gentlemen are trained both as traditional architects, but also as landscape architects. Um, And Akbar builds this tomb for his father, as I said. And this tomb, even though it's built considerably before the Taj Mahal, is going to have a direct impact on the plan and the appearance of the Taj itself. Now, this tomb is strategically located. It's located symbolically between Delhi's capital that I'm showing you on the lower left part of the screen and the tomb of Delhi's or India's most important Sufi saint. That is a Muslim um, saint who is mystically inclined so, what we have with this tomb is uh, a point between spiritual power and temporal power. In addition, the site that was chosen is an area that has very, very specifically and long associated been, um, been associated with India's ancient epic, the Mahabharata. So, the tomb is has temporal links, spiritual links, but also links the Mughals with India's ancient past. Now, the tomb is inside a huge walled garden. This is the entrance to the tomb. And it's set, as I said, in the middle of this garden, which is a four-part garden, which has been then further subdivided by watered channels and pools. Now, remember, this was the kind of garden that had been first established by um, Babur. And remember, I mentioned that this kind of garden had political overtones, had political implications. And so we can imagine that these gardens, which are traditionally associated in Islam with the gardens of paradise, here also have notions of control, order, and um, rule. If we look at the uh, sort of a detail of the gardens, which have been restored recently by the Aga Khan Foundation, um, you can see that we have very narrow water channels that connect usually square pools. They are fed from giant wells that are behind the gateway that I show you here. Originally, right behind this tomb was a huge river. The river is now shifted considerably, about 20 kilometers. And today, unfortunately, there are train tracks there. But you can see that water is fed um, into these channels by these, then the water from these wells that you can't see comes down these um, uh, uh, slopes, which are uh, carved in a chevron that is a zigzag pattern to make the water look, look like it's flowing even faster than it is. We don't know exactly how these tomb gardens were planted, but contemporary paintings give us some ideas. You can see that we have trees you can see that we have tall cypress trees to the back. You can see that we have fruit trees. We can see a mango tree in one of the paintings. We can see banana trees in both of the paintings. Today, if you go to any of these gardens tombs, including the Taj, you'll see grass. That is a British colonial invention. Mm-hmm. What you would have seen at the time would have been flowers in each of the parterres, and it would have been organized so that at least throughout the year, some parterre would have had um, 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 flowers in them. If you look at the back of the painting on the left-hand side, you can actually see a depiction of the the kind of wells that were used Uh, You can see that there's a kind of string of clay pots. These clay pots would go deep into the well, pick up water, and then put it through a spout. If you look at the edge, the right-hand edge of that painting, you can see a lion spout that is pouring, spewing forth water. And then this water would be fed into the channels, just to give you an idea of how that worked. Now, the tomb itself is huge. It sits on an enormous plinth, um, which was very high. And you can see that there are niches that lead to rooms on the plinth. Originally, those chambers would have been intended for the readers of the Quran. That would have taken turns, but there would have been somebody reading from the Quran. 24 hours a day, especially during the Urs, that is the annual commemoration of the king's death. That is an Urs in Urdu in Persian, literally means marriage. And this is the day, death is the day of one's spiritual union with the divine. The tomb of, takes on an Indic air by not being tiled as it would have been were it built in the Timurid Homeland. But we see that it's faced with red and white stone. This is something that has been used in Indian Muslim architecture since the 14th century. And so this is a very Indian design. But the tomb's shape which is what is known as a Baghdadi octagon or literally an octagon who, that has unequal sides, chamfered sides, is a Timurid tradition. I'll come back to that in a minute. This is just some close-ups of um, the red and white stone. And what you're seeing on the right-hand side is actually the prayer niche, in the tomb that shows the direction of Mecca. This prayer niche, as you can see, has an arch that then has a um, net-like pattern, literally a screen that allows for the entrance of light. And this evokes a very specific verse in the Quran where God's presence is likened to a light in a niche. The tomb, as I mentioned, is modeled on Timurid prototypes. And here on the right, I'm showing you an unfinished late Timurid tomb that is in Afghanistan. Um, And were it finished, somebody believes it would have looked like this. I think it's a bit exaggerated. (laughs) <laughs> um, but the idea being that you would have had a tall dome that is part of a, again a um, one of these Baghdadi octagons and th- with minarets. In this case, we have no minarets at Humayun's tomb, but those will appear at the Taj Mahal. So while the f- facing. The stone cladding of the tomb is very Indic. The actual design is very Timurid in inspiration. So is to the interior of the tomb. Indian tombs until now have had a single chamber. The tomb interior plan that you see on the left is has a central chamber, with eight interconnecting chambers around it. This plan type is known as an eight paradise plan. And it too is modeled on Timurid plans. What you see on the right is the plan, interior plan of that unfinished tomb I showed you from Afghanistan. Now, if you look at it, you'll see that those chambers are not totally interconnected. You'd have to go into the separate central room to go into the ancillary chambers. At Humayun's tomb, you can see that while somewhat convoluted, they are all interconnected. And this would allow for circumambulation of the deceased. Circumambulating a tomb is a practice that was done to Sufis, that is, Deceased mystic Muslim saints. Under the Moguls, we find the line increasingly blurring between the divine and the temporal. This is a image uh, two images of the interior. On the right, you see that prayer niche, that mihrab that I showed you from the outside. Now you can see it from the inside, and while this interior of this tomb is more austere than perhaps it's Timurid prototypes, its interior space is vast and is creates a kind of solemnity. um, That is very uh, typical of what we're going to find in Mughal um, funereal architecture. Now, Akbar did many, many things besides build his father's tomb. But for the purposes of our talk today, we need to move on to his son and successor, whose name is Jahangir. He rules from 1605 to 27. And the painting I'm showing you here is a double page composition. And it has significance, I think, for two reasons for our purposes. One is that Jahangir, whose name means World Caesar, is being handed the globe by a Sufi saint. In other words, we see Jahangir's temporal and spiritual links here. And so we see a continuation of the link between mystics and temporal rulers. Jahangir builds his father a tomb. He builds Akbar a tomb. And while the tomb was probably built commencing around 1605, Dated inscriptions give us the years of 1612 to 14. It's in a suburb of Agra, the city where the Taj Mahal is, known as Sikandar. The only reason I'm telling you that is because guidebooks will tell you what's Sikandar, and you should know it's right near Agra. The tomb is in a much larger garden complex than that of um, Humayun's tomb. And here we see a um, a, a 19th century painting of the tomb. And you can see that it has a large entrance, and I'll turn to, and that it has four giant parterres that are divided and some divided by water channels, as you can see here. These parterres are very deeply sunken so that huge trees can grow in them, um, and just top the very um, just just come to the top of the area where one walks, and so literally it seems like you're walking in a literal um, a carpet a carpet that's made of trees of forests. Um, this is the entrance into the tomb, and we'll come back to that in a few minutes. The tomb is very different in appearance from Humayun's tomb, as you can see here. It um, has the water channel that you can see is dry here, but the tomb is not domed. It is flat, roofed, as you can see, and we'll come back to that in a minute. The tomb, in fact, is tiered, as you can see, not only from the image on the screen, but also from the architectural drawing and the idea of the red and white sandstone now has become more decorative. In other words, we have uh, small pieces of red and white marble, red sandstone and white marble inlaid into the surface into an increasingly geometric and decorative pattern. The interior is painted in a sumptuous manner. And this interior leads to a passage where you can see a kind of narrow, dark passage that leads to the crypt, which is where the actual body is buried. In Islam, the body is, the deceased is buried at least six feet underground. With the head and the feet facing in very different, in very specific directions. The crypt today is austere, as you can see here, but we know from writings of European travelers who were there in the 17th century that originally the walls of these crypts, this crypt, was painted with. Christian imagery. Why Christian imagery? Well, remember I told you that the Mughal rulers perceived themselves as being semi-divine. And according to Mughal tradition, the progenitor of the house was born of a princess who had been impregnated with a ray of divine light. Images of Mary, Christian images of Mary, were a perfect vehicle for expressing the semi-divine lineage of the Mogul house. And so we know that Christian images that evoke this um, a source of its genealogy were painted on these walls. Returning to the exterior of the tomb, As I mentioned, you can see that it has no dome. Now, before we actually look at the top floor, I want to talk just a little bit about the Emperor Akbar. He had a a very faithful chronicler who was his political advisor and friend who wrote a massive volumes about Akbar's history. And when he talked about Akbar and he talked about his royal roots, he described it as such. Royalty is a light emanating from God, a ray from the sun, the illuminator of the universe. This light is divine light. It is communicated by God to kings without the intermediate assistance of anyone. So while many people have speculated that originally there was to be a dome on the top of this tomb, if we look at the inscriptions that are on this tomb on the very top, the final verses read, May Akbar's soul shine like the rays of the sun and the moon in the light of God. There, the false cenotaph is, remember the real one is way down there below, is illuminated in day and night by the sun's light and the moon's light. Akbar's soul literally shines. And so, indeed... This very unusual tomb design was very intentional, as we can see from looking at the inscription. Now, if we go to the splendid entrance gate, the part that was actually built at the final part of the tomb, we can see that it is magnificently embellished with um, floral and decorative patterns that are inlaid, Um, in white marble against the red sandstone. And we can also see that it's surmounted by four soaring minarets. These minarets will again reappear at the Taj, but in a different location. We can see that there is a very long inscription that goes around both sides of this doorway. You can see it's intricately carved. And the inscription, which is, bears a panel with a date, which corresponds to 1613-14 of the Islamic era, of, of the Christian era, of the common era, sorry. It includes the calligrapher's name, whose name is Abdu'l-Haq Shirazi, who is given later the title Amanat Khan. We'll come back to him. Now, this inscription is an inscription in Persian, it's an extraordinarily long Persian poem, and it ends with the words, These are the gardens of Eden. Enter them and live forever. So we have inscriptional evidence that these tombs, these mogul tombs, that seem to be little paradises on earth, indeed are intended to be replicas of Paradise, literally tended to be visual replicas of paradise. In 1611, Jahangir, remember he's the one who just built Akbar's tomb, he marries a woman named, well, who he names, Nur Jahan. Her name means light of the world. And she's extraordinarily powerful. She is the aunt that George mentioned. Um, of actually the later queen Mumtaz Mahal, she's extraordinarily powerful, um, and she even issues, for example, coins in her own name. She holds enormous wealth; she controls trade routes, collects taxes, and and this is just one of the Sarai's that is um, a place for. Um, merchants to stay um, that she built on a road between Delhi and Lahore. Her father was the Mughal finance minister. And his picture is on uh, the left-hand side. He's corresponding with the Emperor Jahangir there, talking to him. Her father was known as Itamudala, which means pillar of the state, Her father died in 1621, and that was only six months after um, his wife, Nur Jahan's mother, had died. (coughs) Excuse me. She builds for them a tomb in the city of Agra. That is the same city where the Taj Mahal will be built. The tomb takes quite a long time to build. It's not because nur Jahan's short of money. It's because, as you're going to see, of the sumptuous inlay. The tomb is um, also set in a four-part garden. You can see the water channels here, devoid of water, are getting a little wider than they had been before. Uh, the inlay, as I said, is amazing. Here you can see that semi-precious stones have been put into the white marble in a manner known as Pietra Dura. That is, they're, they're put in like, almost like a jigsaw puzzle. On the lower level of this tomb, we tend to have geometric and some floral patterns. But on the upper levels, we tend to have things like wine vessels. uh, These slender flasks are wine vessels. We have fruit. We have flowers. In other places, we have cypress trees. These are references in Persian poetry, again, to the divine. The cypress tree is a metaphor for the beloved who ultimately is God? The wine vessel is a reference to the intoxication that one feels having union with the divine. The fruit that one sees is the promised, um, uh, the promised uh, father of the food of paradise that is found on the Day of Judgment for the Faithful. So we see references again to paradise. The interior of the tomb is again a Hashbihis, that is an eight-part paradise tomb, a reference to the multiple levels of paradise. It's arranged in a more symmetrical manner than what we've seen before, but it's the same design. And originally the interior was sumptuously painted. Unfortunately, in the 19th century, um, attempts by some amateur were made that has pretty much uh, dulled it, should I say. So I'm showing you this um, painting from um, before this was done. The tomb, as you can see, has an upper floor, and I show you that in the upper left image. And the entire... Um, All four sides of this little upper part are exquisitely carved marble screens that allow for the entrance of diffused light, again, a reference to the divine. And the floor, if you will look at it, is very unusual. It's basically designed as a rare Persian carpet type. What we have here with this tomb is now a stone version of what you would have in a sumptuous house in a palace. In other words, we have an eternal abode in paradise. Now, Prince Kuram, who is Jahangir's third son and the future Shah Jahan, is born in 1592. And as was mentioned in the introduction, for some time he was a favored era parent. For example, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little... Uh, we, we have a picture of him standing on a th- the, the globe, another one of these paintings of the site type I showed you at the very introduction. This is quite common, the way he's introduced depicted. Um, And we know that he marries Mumtaz Mahal after a long engagement in 1612. This is believed by many to be a portrait of his wife, Mumtaz Mahal. It might be worth here making a small comment about portraiture of Mughal women. It's very unusual. And Most of the time we believe we have no portraits, but this particular portrait along with one of, um, along with another one I'm going to show you, come out of a very personal album. It would have been the equivalent of today's photograph album, um, but of paintings. This this painting of Mumtaz Mahal comes out of her son's personal album. And so it is extremely likely this is is a portrait of Mumtaz Mahal, but it was intended only for intimate personal family use, never for larger consumption. So we know that he marries her in 1612. We know that they're married for almost 20 years, and we know that she gives birth to 14 children. In the meantime, uh, the future Shah Jahan is doing brilliantly on the military front. His father, Jahangir, is not much of a military man at all, and he relies on the future Shah Jahan, Prince Kuram, to uh, win multiple important military victories, which he does. And in an official history, for example, we see him being awarded with um, turban ornaments in very ceremonial um, situations. But by 1622, things start falling apart. That is the Queen Nurjahan Jahan begins to realize that the future Shah Jahan, Prince Kurram, is not going to follow her particular political agenda, and convinces uh, Jahangir to have her, to have him, I'm sorry, sort of disowned, and he becomes, he is called Bidaunat. That means without authority. And then he begins that rebellion That was discussed in the introduction. However, by 1628, that is one year after the death of his father, he's able to accede to the throne. Now, Shah Jahan has a very certain vision of himself. I'm showing you two paintings on the screen. The one on the left is Shah Jahan as a young man. In fact, it's this painting, which is in the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, is inscribed uh, in Shah Jahan's hands with the words, this is a good likeness of me in twenty at 25. Mm-hmm. And you can see that we see on the other side of the screen, we see... Uh, Shah Jahan in old age. Shah Jahan in old age is an older gentleman, but he is no less distinguished, perhaps more distinguished, than he was at 25. He has no wrinkles, no flaws, no flab. He mm. is a perfect man. That is an Islamic theological term, an Insane Kamil, a man who models his behavior on that of the Prophet Muhammad, which, by the way, Shan Jahan did not do, but he Mm -hmm. wished to project that image of himself as being an ideal human, a perfect man. He was also, as is well known, a very, very prolific patron of architecture and I'm just going to show you a few examples one of which is his famous congregational mosque in Delhi at the time of its construction the largest mosque in um, this Indian subcontinent it was known as the world showing mosque it sat on the highest hill in Delhi and it was not only meant as the Mughal premier mosque, but it was meant to showcase itself as outshining the mosque in Isfahan, the Iranian Safavid mosque that had the same name, the world-showing mosque that had been built early, and the famous Turkish Ottoman mosques. In other words, Shah Jahan, whose name I remember means king of the world, is using this mosque to show his amazing authority over, remember, he is the richest king in the Islamic empires, showing his authority, his power, his wealth. As I mentioned, the mosque is the largest one at this point in the Indian subcontinent. And you can see that it is embellished, um, as we've seen with the traditional red and white. There are a series of calligraphic panels that cover the entire facade. You can see them just above the arches of the mosque. If you look at these panels, they look, they're in the Arabic script, of course, they look like they are from the Quran. Why? Because all the short vowels, that is, those little wiggly lines that you see over the letters, are marked. In general, and almost without exception, the only time those little lines are put on a text is in the Quran. That is, the rest of the time, it's assumed that you know the short vowels are. Therefore, these panels appear to be Quranic verses. However, they're not. They are Persian poetry, and they aren't particularly religious in nature. Rather, they are economists praising Shah Jahan, giving you an idea of what he's like. But he is famous for his mosque architecture. This is a mosque he builds at the shrine of India's most important Sufi. That is, remember, these mystic Muslim saints. And note it's in white marble. Increasingly, what we're going to see now is that white marble is used for structures associated with Sufis. And with structures that are associated with Shah Jahan himself. This is the mosque that is in one of his palaces in Agra. He also builds a series of palaces, and I'm going to show you the ones from Delhi, um, even though these actually post-date the Taj because they, they visually are like the ones in Agra. As you can see, the buildings that I'm showing you here are all white marble. These are the buildings that were the ones that were personally used by Shah Jahan. And I'm showing you actually the uh, the private audience hall, the Diwan-i-Khas here, um, which is, would have originally been right overlooking the river, today a highway, because remember the river shifted but it would have had the cooling breezes from the river. That is um, 17th century air conditioning. And Mm -hmm. we can see from uh, paintings from the 19th century that the interior was once sumptuously gilt. There are traces of it, but not much is left. The interior ceilings were all hand hammered silver. They were taken away. Uh, later on by a rival um, company. And you can see that the eaves of the exterior of the building were extended with um, red awnings, which is the imperial mogul color. If you look at the lower illustration, you can see that there's a body of water. In fact, there was a canal that went through the entire... Uh, length of these white marble buildings. Uh, this is known as the Canal of Paradise. That was his official name. And you can see it in the middle. There is a great fountain that looks like a giant lotus flower. You can see it in the detail in, sorry, the upper left, uh, right here. And it was once inlaid with semi precious stones, carnelian jasperite um, other stones. So I want you to use your um, glasses, your mental glasses, and imagine water spouting over this lotus that is inlaid with these colored semi-precious stones. I want you to imagine the guilt still painted all over the ceilings and to know that the verses of a Persian poet were painted on these walls that read, if there be a paradise on earth, this is it, this is it, this is it. So we have the notion that Shah Jahan is quite obsessed with the idea of paradise. His favorite wife dies in 1631 in the southern part of India while she's giving birth to her 14th child. She's buried in a temporary tomb until her body can be shifted to Agra, which is then the Mughal capital. The tomb itself, the Taj, which is built for her, as I mentioned, is built between 1632 and 47. These are the dates we know from inscriptions. It doesn't really mean that this is actually when the tomb was finished. And to remind you, the tomb's real name, its official name is the Illumina tomb. So the Taj Mahal is obviously, it captured the imagination of many for a long time. We have the Daniels, who made aquatints of it. We have the famous Indian painter, Sitaram, who painted the Taj in the early 19th century when its gardens were still completely overgrown. We have the Taj being used as one of the biggest advertising symbols for quite a year, quite a Mm -hmm. while um Johnny Walker Black when Shah Jahan saw the contractor's bid did he say make the pool a little smaller <laughs> trying to say that his product is superior there was the uh, Helmsley Palace uh, the woman who didn't understand that uh, the Taj was an eternal ab- abode, not a one-night stand she <laughs> used it as a you could, you can still get these these jigsaw puzzles where over a thousand pieces you can put together your own Taj. Or, I like this one, the advertisement for Greek olive oil with an, an Arabic name with a picture of the Taj Mahal. Wow. Obviously, a superior product. Um, your China could be built like the Taj. And for a while, quite a while, the government of India was using the Taj as a advertisement to come to India, the closest thing you can get to heaven on earth. The famous Doris Duke built in her famous Shangri-La Hawaii estate, a bathroom completely inspired by the Taj Mahal. In Bangladesh, a... A gentleman, a film star, built a 58 million replica, so-called, of the Taj. The Taj does not have pink lining on it um, that he built because he felt badly that people in Bangladesh couldn't easily go to India to see the Taj. And just last year, an Indian in a fairly small city uh, built a replica of the Taj, the third the size of the original as a home for his wife, because he loves her so much. Mm. Now, not everything is as cheerful. Right-wing nationalists use the Taj for their own agenda. They claim it was a Hindu temple and it's part of a larger, pernicious agenda to erase a Muslim and a Mughal past. But turning to the building itself, you can see in this aerial view that the Taj covers an enormous complex. It is not just a tomb. It is not just a garden. It has an enormous entrance gate, a huge forecart, and a huge village in front of it that was built for the artisans who actually worked on the Taj. Across the river from the Taj was a second garden that was really part of the larger complex known as the Moonlight Garden. There was a reflecting pool, as you can sort of see um, in this aerial version here, it's not in very good shape anymore, that was used to capture an image of a second Taj on moonlit Nights. Um, the Taj Mahal was not isolated; it was part of a of many um, garden and tomb complexes that lined the river, as you can see here in this um, a, 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 a sort of reconstruction sketch that was done by Eva Cook and her her colleague. You can see that the Taj is far larger than any of these other complexes. But it wasn't isolated, it wasn't alone. The name of the architect only became known to us in a generation after Shah Jahan's death. He was so in control of it that he really wished that he could be the considered, he could be considered the 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 builder the um, the architect the the mastermind and probably in some ways he was behind it. Um, it was built as we know over a long period of time, and again, Epicalc, um and her colleague have um, a, a sort of reconstructed how it looked over the period of the first two ores. That is, remember I told you the ores is that anniversary of the, the, of the in this case the queen's death that is remember her marriage with the divine um, and so you can see that it comes up slowly um, but we know where the marble came from it comes from a quarry called Makrana which is about 200 kilometers or so to the west of the city of Agra it's still used as a quarry today Um, And we know that um, uh, Shah Jahan sent out an official order um, to the um, prince who actually controlled this area saying, you may not use this area for yourself. I need all the marble. I need all the oxen. I need all the carts for my building projects. At this time, he was not only building the Taj Mahal. He was also building his Agra Fort and other structures as well. So we have to realize that there were multiple, multiple projects going on at the same time. I mentioned to you that there was an entire village built in front of um, the complex, and this is a modern view of it. It still exists. Of course, many of the older structures are now replaced with newer ones. Um, and here again from Eva uh work, we can see that there is a is first a forecourt um, where one would probably park one's weapon, among other things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, then one would uh, uh, go into the court that leads you to the entrance and then in to... The gardens itself, you can see in the case of the Taj that there are channels that divide the land into parterres, but there is one single fountain in the middle that then leads you to the mausoleum, and on either side are an identical structure. The west-facing one on your left is the mosque, and the other one, um, which is identical for balance and symmetrical purposes, was probably used for the readers of the Quran. Remember, we mentioned this in the context of Humayun's tomb. Uh, So too, we have this in the case of the Taj. So the entrance, as you see it here, is if you look at the size of the people um, next to the building, you can see that it is truly monumental. It leads you into um, the a, a view of the of the, uh, I'm sorry of the mausoleum, and notice here now the water channels are much wider than those narrow water channels that we've been seeing at the previous Mughal tombs. Here, they are much more evocative of the verses in the Quran that describe the rivers of paradise um, in paradise. This is a, an aerial view that gives you an idea of the waterway, the fountain in the middle, and then um, again, the waterway. We see the fountain here. And the close up. Um, as you can see, the fountain is known as El Khosr which is the name of a Quranic chapter that describes God's never-ending mercy, his never-ending bounty here in the form, of course, of eternal waters. You can see from the now dried up reflecting pool on the other side, the mosque and it's um, it's sort of answering building. It's actually, that's what it's called in Urdu Jawab. Um, And you can see how they, they, they balance the structure. Uh, This is the actual mosque and it's used um, for prayer on Fridays um, to, in today's um, um, Taj complex. Now we looked at, several tombs. We looked at Humayun's tomb, Akbar's tomb, the tomb of Nur-Jahan's parents, and now the Taj. As you can see, if you can remember all four of them, that the Taj resembles Humayun's tomb fairly closely. It has little resemblance to the tomb of either Akbar or Nur-Jahan's parents, whom I assume, remember I told you, is the most Timurid appearing of all Mughal buildings, that is until the construction of the Taj. Shah Jahan calls himself basically a second Timur. In other words, he is extraordinarily proud of his Timurid lineage and so for the Taj Mahal to be based on a structure that is extraordinarily Timurid in feeling is of no surprise in this case. The Taj, again, like the other structures we've looked at, does not have a single chamber inside. It too is divine, designed as an eight-paradise type building. And if you look at the plan, you can see that the plinth has chambers underneath it. These chambers were almost surely used. And they're not in good condition today, as you can see. They're almost surely used to house um, the readers of the Quran when they're resting. And perhaps served as uh, rest houses for the royal family when they um, came to visit. Um, you can see here the plan at the at the uh, on the top left follows the eight paradise plan. Now, if any of you have been to the Taj Mahal or plan to visit the Taj Mahal, you will not have a sense of this having a central chamber with eight rooms that go off it because you will see the central chamber, but the, the, the ancillary rooms have been blocked off. And so the visitor's perception is very different from what was intended to be an architectural reality, but indeed um, the central chamber Did have the same circumambulatory chambers for um, of the eight rooms that we had at Humayun's tomb or at other tombs. You can see in this view that the cenotaphs, the central one being of Mumtaz Mahal, and later Shah Jahan is buried here, are surrounded with a screen. I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. I just want to show you, and I know this is a little fuzzy, but it's the image I have, that there's also a crypt underground here. And while today many, not many people are allowed into the crypt, you can see that there are, just as we had at Akbar's tomb, we have the tomb, the I'm sorry, the actual cenotaphs um, below the upper level. Now, I'm sorry, going back to the upper part, you can see that the false cenotaphs that you see here are surrounded by an octagonal marble screen. This is a replacement screen. Originally, there was a gold screen that was um, uh, inlaid with precious jewels that went around it. But even Shah Jahan realized that this would only encourage looters. And so we had it taken down and replaced with this marble screen. I also suspect he wanted to use the gold for some other purpose, like maybe <laughs> the peacock throne. Um, so the cenotaphs, these false cenotaphs themselves are sumptuous. They are inlaid in the same manner that I told you about earlier, the dura. And you can see here the carnelian and it's different shades. Um, along with some of the other stones that are used. These um, include lapis, although you can't see lapis here. Um, Jasper, agate, other stones are inlaid extremely carefully and they're chosen for their nuanced shades, I'm giving this extraordinary um, detail to the structure. Now, the tomb itself is white marble. And we've already talked about white marble as being associated with saints, tombs, and also royal presence. The Again, we have this blurring here of the two. And the Taj changes color with every change of the sky. I've been there. I've been there at eclipses. I've been there in brilliant sunlight. I've been there when rain's about to start. It's always changing color. And again, this is intentional, because remember, it is literally an emanation of divine light, this light that is marble it absorbs light. I think it's no accident that this structure is pure white marble. There is, however, detail, and this includes inscriptional panels, that go, as you can see, around the arched entrances on all the sides. The calligraphy is exquisite, as you can see here. And it's designed by the same man who designed the calligraphy on Akbar's tomb, Abdul Sharazi, who's known as Amanat Khan. Every inscription on the Taj Mahal Unlike that at Akbar's tomb, remember that was all Persian poetry. Every inscription on the Taj Mahal is derived from the Quran, and one of the final one reads, "O thy soul at peace, return thou unto thy Lord, and enter thou my paradise." In other words. The invitation to enter paradise is the same on both tombs, but one is simply a Persian poetry, and the other is in the words of God. But remember, according to Muslim tradition, the Quran is literally the words of God as delivered to Muhammad, his final prophet. Along the bottom of the taj, just we call the dado, are panels of flowers that you can see here. These flowers are exquisite exquisite and lifelike, and yet, actually the flowers and the leaves don't match. They're as if they're surreal flowers, the kinds of flowers that can only live in the gardens of paradise. Um, and you can see now that the Taj is a- across the waters that we've talked about before in that garden. We know this is the original garden from Mogul maps that you can see here. Um, and I already told you a little bit about how that would have worked now. One of the questions I want to think about is, did Shah Jahan intend the Taj to be his own tomb as well as that of his wife? So I want to think about very quickly about events that happened that transpired after Shah Jahan became extremely ill in 1857, as well as its official name, the Illumin. Tomb. Now, you've already heard some of the details of this, but I'm going to just go through some of it. In 15, 18, and sorry, 1657, um, Shah Jahan becomes ill. A war of succession breaks out. And eventually, one of his sons, whose name is Aurangzeb, his portrait is on the right, assumes the throne in 1658. He imprisons Shah Jahan in his... Agra Palace, where he can look at the Taj, and the deposed Shah Jahan is attended by his eldest daughter, Jahan Ara, whose portrait is at the bottom of the screen. This event is remembered by the famous Tagores, one of them which paints this painting, The Passing of Shah Jahan, and the famous Uh, uh, Rabindranath Tagore, who uh, wins um, a Nobel Prize for Poetry, writes, You knew, Shah Jahan, life and youth, wealth and glory, they all drift away in the current of time. You strove, therefore, to perpetuate only the sorrow of your heart. Let the splendor of diamond, pearl, and ruby vanish like the magic shimmer of the rainbow, Let this one teardrop, this Taj Mahal, listen spotlessly bright on the cheek of time forever and ever. So, the Taj is remembered as a monument to love. But was it only a monument to love? And after his death in 1666, Shah Jahan's buried there. But does he always want to be buried there? Let's think about its name. The name of the tomb is the Illumin tomb. There is only one other tomb that is known by that name. And that is the tomb of the prophet Muhammad in the city of Medina. Remember, Shah Jahan wished to be considered an i Kamayal that is a perfect man A man who modeled himself on that other perfect man, the Prophet Muhammad. It would be very unlikely that the illumined tomb was only intended to entomb his wife. I would say it was always intended to be Shah Jahan's tomb. And we should remember that as well. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Professor Asher. That was absolutely exquisite. Um, And and again, thank you for picking up some of the material um, that Gulbshan Khan was going to speak about. And uh, I'd like to let the audience know that if you have any questions for Professor Asher, you can write them out on cards, uh, and uh, we'll collect them for the Q&A afterwards. And uh, then we'll move on to the next thing where we're going to talk about um, Shah Jahan's Passions. Family, politics, and architecture. Well, architecture has been covered um, by uh, Professor Asher. And as I said, uh, Gulshan Khan was going to speak on part of this topic, um, but she couldn't make it. And we found out two days ago that she couldn't make it, so I had to ask, you know, who do I know that knows enough about Shah Jahan to give this uh, part of the lecture on two days' notice uh, and, and I, I have no people who are, know this, but I only knew one person who was foolish enough to do that. <laughs> and here I am. <laughs> so I'm going to tell you a little bit about Shah Jahan. Shah Jahan thought of himself, as, as Professor Asher made very clear, as the perfect man. Uh, you'll find in this story um, that was slightly exaggerated. So. Um, this, and I want, to, I want to set this in the time. This is only not even 400 years ago. It looks very exotic. It looks otherworldly. It looks from another time and place. Well, it's from another place. It's from pre-British India. But it, it's not very long ago. This picture here was done by Rembrandt while Shah Jahan was still living. So he's a contemporary of Rembrandt. Now, Rembrandt did not meet him but there were miniatures uh, that made their way to, to uh, Amsterdam, and uh, he, I think Rembrandt did about 25 copies. Uh, it was at a time he was needed some money, uh, which, if you know his story, that's often. Uh, so that's, but but that's to give you a little bit of an idea. When Rembrandt was, you know, painting in Europe, Shah Jahan was ruling in India. There were other major major rulers. These are the three main empires. And, of course, uh, over here would be China and the Qing Dynasty. Um, so here's the Mughal Empire, or Mughal Empire for those who are British. And here is the Persian Empire, the Safavid Empire. And here's the Ottoman Empire. Now, just so that you have a clear idea about the time frame, the Ottoman Empire lasted from 1300 to 1923. That's, you know, a long time, 600 years The Persian Empire lasted from 1501 to 1722 and the Mughal Empire from 1526 until the final parts of it were put to an end by the British in 1858. We're talking about Shah Jahan being the Mughal Emperor from uh, 1528, I'm sorry, 1628 to 1657, 29 years, right in the middle of the 17th century. And right in the middle of the power of those, all those Islamic empires. So for 100 years before and for more than 100 years after, this was all going to be Islamic empire. And I, I think that that's useful to keep in mind. He was, uh, he was not under siege from uh, neighbors. He was under siege from inside, you know, lots of his subordinates. So the Mughal empire uh, covered this much of India at 1605, that was at the end of Akbar's reign. And then Jahangir, Shah Jahan, and his son Aurangzeb made it come out that much further. So let me go back just for a second. So that's, that's how the, the southern part was expanded by Arangzeb. Uh, these areas down here, Shah Jahan expanded a little bit out to the northwest over there. But he did not do that much expansion of the empire himself. He mostly inherited what he, what he had, but he had to keep it intact. He had a lot of fights with the Persian Empire, which he usually settled. First of all, he married some of their daughters, uh, and which reminds me. Uh, I was in, Indi- uh, in uh, Egypt um, in 1986 in, in Luxor, and uh, the uh, man who ran the Cairo Museum was giving our tour, and he was talking about it. It was 1986, as I said. And he said, you know, a lot of the problems... That are going on right now, which was right during the Iraq Iran war that lasted for eight years and killed many people. A lot of those problems could be solved if only Ayatollah Khomeini had a daughter that he could marry off to Saddam Hussein's son. That's, that's the way we solve our problems around here. So um, it's a habit that has, has gone on. I mean, the, the, the Europeans used it too, but uh, it's not that popular nowadays. It's one way to like, get rid of movie stars from America. All right, so these are these are uh, some of the facts. So Shah Jahan, as as Professor Asherman, fifteen ninety two to sixty six, he lived seventy four years. His wife, fifteen ninety three to sixteen thirty one, she lived thirty eight years. They were betrothed in sixteen o seven, married five years later, when they were twenty nineteen. They had fourteen children in the next nineteen years. I'll, I'll show you the, the dates on some of that. And just to give you an idea, right now, I mean, everybody who runs for president has to be at least 70 years old, it seems. Uh, that's, that's the way it's been lately, right? Uh, so these, it's very important to understand, I think, to get an idea of the time. For the children of Shah Jahan and for himself, they were put in power as teenagers. When he was given his awards from his father for his military exploits, he was 25 years old, you know, for having succeeded. And he, he was a general in his, in his teens. Um, some of his children did the same thing. So he was, but, but he was pretty much in the prime of his life when he took over. He was 36 years old and he, he ruled for 29 years. So he ruled until he was 65 years old. That's important to remember also when he's 65 years old, we'll talk about this in a second too, his father lived to be 58 years old and his grandfather, Akbar, to 63 years old. So when he was 65 and, and was dethroned, he was already older than both his father and grandfather had been. So his sons probably figured it was time. Well, they certainly did figure it was time. They should have taken lessons from Prince Charles. Right? <laughs> Not yet. So he died nine years later, but he's held in prison for all those nine years. He really lived King Lear. He lived the King Lear life. He turned everything over, I mean, not intentionally, but he, everything got turned over to his children. And then he was at their mercy for the last nine years of his life. It's interesting, it was only 50 years after King Lear was written by Shakespeare that he lived that story. So uh, another one of Rembrandt's sketches, uh, this is with, with his favorite son, his oldest son, Dara Shikoh. Um, I'll say a little bit more about him. And this is his wife. Um, you saw this before. So uh, you have all the information. Uh, it was very interesting uh, what Professor uh, Asher said. I read the same thing recently that usually the portraits of the women uh, are, are made up, idealized, have no idea what, the, what they really look like. But there's some, some belief that the ones of Mumta Mazal uh, have some accuracy because it was in a private collection of her son, as you said. Another, you, you've seen the Taj Mahal, but it really is. Stunning. So, they had 14 children. Their first daughter, they were married in 1612. Their first daughter was born in March 1613. She was healthy, but she caught smallpox when she was three, and she died at three years of age. Um, I I want you to look at the dates. March. It was actually March 30th, 1613. The second child was born March 23rd, 1614, so just under a year. And The third child was born March 20th, 1615, also under a year. Uh, The next one, 1616. Next one, 1617. Uh, The the next emperor, 1618. And so the first first child and the next five were all healthy, did not die in childbirth and everything. And then they had uh, one son who survived from 1624, and actually the child who was born when she died, the 14th child, survived. Um, and lived 75 years, uh, so 1631. So they lost six children in that area, um, that mostly at childbirth. Um, but these are the seven that survived, and um, have them listed because these are the characters in the War of Succession. Um, and they all played a role, except for the youngest. She seemed to have stayed out of it. She liked her just older brother, uh, the youngest brother, a little bit, but she basically stayed out of it. But all the other six were extremely involved in what happened. So, and, and you'll notice, you can see right away, how involved they must have been. Uh, the oldest daughter lived 67 years, this brother 44 years, this brother 44 years, this brother 37 years, and the one who won 88 years. Uh, you can tell from that who won, right? So uh, this is perhaps not an accurate picture, but this is Princess John This is the oldest uh, surviving daughter. There was one older daughter that died of smallpox at three. Um, So she's the second daughter. She sounds from all the records. It's very hard to tell from history, you know, how accurate the stories are because it depends on who writes them and everything. Um, But she seems to be an ideal person in so many different ways. Uh, One, she was very competent, very intelligent. She ran her own businesses. She owned ships. She did uh, just like her. Uh, I think it would be her great-grandmother, did that was mentioned by Professor Asher. She ran her own businesses, made a lot of money from that, plus she had uh, money from uh, being the princess. Um, And she got interested in Sufism, uh, which Sufism, for those of you who don't know, is is sort of like um, the, the mystical version of Islam. Some people in Islam don't believe it's Islam. Of course, they think it is part of Islam. Um, a little like the Kabbalah in, in Judaism. The, uh, the interest is in the mystical side of life, and as you can tell from Professor Asher's uh, lecture, a lot of the arch- architecture was based on those ideas. Um, she was a very diplomatic woman. She didn't seem to ask for anything for herself much. I mean, she, she had plenty of money and so on, and she had jewels, etc. But she wasn't politically ambitious herself. Um, she favored the next son, who was the oldest son, Dara, um, and she shared h- her interest with Sufi, in Sufism with him. Their father, Shah Jahan, introduced them both to Sufism in their mid-twenties. Um, and she wrote a book uh, in addition to everything else that she did. And I'll tell a couple of other stories about her, but very interesting character. Now, the, the first boy, Dara, uh, also uh, more intellectually inclined, more mystically inclined. He, he had, uh, I don't know whether he did it himself or not, of course it says that he did it himself, but I'm not quite sure, uh, but he had the Bhagavad Gita and 50 of the Upanishads, those are all famous Hindu books, translated into Persian. I think it was the first translation into Persian of those things. Now he was Islamic but, and Sufi, but he had those uh, translated. He also took an interest in some other ideas, um, and this got him in trouble uh, because one of his Brothers thought that that was being an infidel to even be interested in opening up the books from any other religion. Uh, this is the next son. He seems to have been quite practical, uh, just wanted to be emperor. Um, he, he was in charge uh, in, uh, uh, let's see, in Bengal. He was the governor. Uh, these sons were generally made governor of a district of the empire, by, as I said, by the time they were in their late teens. Uh, instead of going to boarding school, you know, you were married to a princess, uh, sort of a political appointee, <laughs> uh, and you had to have children with a political appointee, and you also were a governor. And that's how you found out whether you could sink or swim. Uh, all, four, all four of the boys did quite well. Um, unfortunately, then they had to fight each other. Most interesting of all, <laughs> Princess Rashanara. So second daughter after a couple of sons. Very smart, talented poet. I think Machiavellian is about the only word you can use for her. She, she was jealous of her older sister. I just described the older sister. Um, you can understand why. You no, know, it's always tough if you're a younger child, if your older sister is good at everything. Um, and she was, well, I'll tell some stories about what she did in the War of Succession later, and then you can make up your own mind. It won't be hard. Um, now you can tell that, you know, this is a spoiler alert. This is the guy who wins. <laughs> he's he's the, the future emperor. Um, and certainly has the hawk on his arm. Uh, it, he, he was definitely after others. So this is the youngest son. So he's, uh, quite a bit younger. Um, as I said, uh, 1624, he was born. So when their father became emperor wasn't the prince anymore but became the emperor it was 1628 at that time the oldest brother was 13 the next one was 12 the one that eventually won was 10 and this one was four years old now that's that's how they came in to the situation and then this again is probably not a picture that's clear about uh, the l- youngest but this was the youngest who was born when mumtaz mazal died and uh, of course she was uh, sort of the baby in the family and everybody was very nice to her. And she was, as I said, other than favoring her brother, who was just a little bit older than her, um, didn't get too involved. So game of Thrones, it really, it really is a, a fascinating story and gives you a really clear idea about what happened in these empires. So, as I said, the four sons are 13, 12, and 10. Now their father uh, runs the empire, has all these architectural achievements, um, adds some land, collects a lot of taxes, basically has a fairly peaceful 30 years. They all grow up. They run Bengal, or they run Gujarat. The youngest son got Gujarat. Um, the, the, another one had Bihar. Uh, they all ran big parts of the empire and, and, were, and they didn't stay at home with their father. They, they had huge palaces and, you know, were the governor in these areas. And therefore they were always dealing, they could, they could even push against kings. Like there was one story told about uh, the king of Golconda, uh, Shuja, who was the second son. He, he wanted to take over that territory and and kill the king and take it over and have it for himself. And Jahanara, the oldest daughter, uh, found out that that's what he was planning and talked to Shah Jahan and said, and this was like in the middle of it, like in the 1640s, and said, we don't want to have that guy killed. Let's make a deal with him. We don't want to create another enemy. We're doing just fine. That's really not necessary. Why don't we make a compromise? Let's, Let's have him pay a tax and then we'll back off. Okay, so that's what happened. And she succeeded with her plan. Unfortunately, it made the son, well, actually it wasn't Shuja; it was it Aurangzeb, was the one who eventually became the emperor who wanted that plan. He was mad at both his older sister and his father for having gotten in his way of taking over that area. And okay. so that was one of the early irritations about a decade before the war broke out between those. But in general, you know, this was a happy family that did very well until the war. So, he becomes seriously ill. As I said before, 1657. He's 65 years old. His father died at 58. His grandfather died at 63. The three younger sons, and, and when Shah Jahan uh, took over the throne, his, he had to eliminate his brothers. And this was just the way things were done. So, just imagine that you're one of the younger brothers, that your oldest brother is the heir apparent, He's in Agra with your father where, where things are being run again. They move between Delhi and Agra a lot. Um, and those three sons are in charge of their governorships, um, but now they don't know whether their father is going to survive or not. And they don't even know if he is. They think that the older um, brother might be lying and that their father's already dead. Right? So that's, the, that's what's going on the last few months of 1657 so November of 1657, you know, you see these guys all sitting there going, okay, when do I play my cards? You know, it's, it's a lot like the Republicans and the Democrats right now, right? They both have leaders that are very, very old. Are they going to last until the 2024 election, right? And everybody's go- wondering, should I or shouldn't I? Should I make a move? Should I not make a move? If I say this against them, and, and, you know, it's, we always say that the emperors rule everything, but of course they've got to have the help of the top military leaders and the top governors from different states and all that kind of stuff. You never, and so all those are shifting alliances. They don't care which sun wins. They just want to be on the side of the sun who wins, right? That's, that's what everybody else is thinking, and that's what's going on now. So we, you, you have some idea of exactly what was going on in these guys' minds. They know, under the rules of the game at the time, that if they lose, they're dead, right? And they just have to know when to play their cards. So, turned out the time to play the cards was in November 1657. Shuja, the second son, grabs the throne in Agra and has himself crowned Shah. So he was Shah for a while. Arangzad, the eventual winner, he grabbed the throne in Delhi and he starts an attack against his brother Shuja. Murad, the youngest proclaims himself the emperor at Ahmedabad. That's in Gujarat. That was, the, that was the area that he was controlling. So within one month, we had three people compl- uh, say that they were the, the emperor, and the one that didn't say it was Dara, who was the eldest, who was the heir apparent, and his father was still alive. He didn't say it. However, however he got involved right away in the fight. So he, the, the armies of Shah Jahan and Dara, the, the father and the, and the eldest son, take on a fight against Shuja, the second son, who, who took over Agra. And then they started to move against Murad, the youngest one who was in Gujarat. And when they do that, they discover that Murad and Aurangzeb, the, that's the third and the fourth sons, they had made a pact to fight with each other on their, you know, together and then take over the throne and split the empire between them. So that was what the two youngest sons had decided to do in their attempt to defeat the two older sons. Now... Now, very short periods of time. April 1658. Aurangzeb, that's the future emperor army, defeats Dara's. Dara is the heir apparent, right? At the same time, the Dara's army is defeating Shujas, the second son. So he's fighting two fronts, like in a major war. And on one front, he's losing. On the other front, he's winning. And now Jahanara comes in, the oldest sister. She writes a letter to Aurangzeb, the eventual winner, advising him not to disobey his father didn't go very far all right but she she tried to get involved so just a little bit later may 17th dara and shuja who are fighting each other get a treaty dara gets to remain as the shah and shuja is no longer you know his claim is out but he gets to rule Bengal, which is where he was the governor, in Orissa, where he has been the governor for a while, but not as long as in Bengal. And then he also got a large part of Bihar. So he he got something for stopping fighting. That was May 17th. May 29th, 12 days later, Aurangzeb defeats Dara, the one who just signed that treaty, and Dara flees. Shah Jahan, the father, tries to stop Aurangzeb's planned invasion of Agra. One of the things that Shah Jahan and Jaharanara did uh, to try to, to solve things a little bit earlier when the tensions were building a year or so before this was they invited, um, they invited Aurangzeb to come to Agra to make peace in the family. This was just as the tensions were building up, you know, like two years before all this really started. Roshanara, the, the Machiavellian sister, heard about it and let Arangzeb know not to show up because they were planning on killing him, not, not actually making peace in the family. Now, whether she made that up or didn't make that up, of course, it created more tension in the family. So all of these ideas that were being proposed by Jahanara had a little bit of problem with Arangzeb already, but she makes, she tried to get uh, the youngest son and the second son from joining the third son, because the third son was, looked like he was doing pretty well. Right? And, and she didn't know that this one and this one had already made a pact. Right? So this is what she's, she's a diplomat. She says, well, look, there's enough land for everybody. There's enough wealth for everybody. So she proposes to the third son, who eventually won, that the oldest would get the Punjab, Shuja would get Bengal, which is where he was, Murad would get Gujarat, which is where he was, Arangzeb's son would get the Deccan. The Deccan was where Arangzeb himself had been the, in charge before. So he's going to let his oldest son take over that. Plus the rest of the empire goes to him. So not a bad deal and well thought out. But uh, he refuses on the basis that Dara is an infidel. That was his reason. Um, I think he also thought he was going to win. Uh, a lot of the times there's religious reasons given for different things that happen. But usually that's just a cover for the politics behind it. So, just a couple of days later, uh, Arangzeb, the eventual winner, besieges his father in the Agra Fort and forces him to surrender unconditionally, none of this you know, diplomatic stuff, by cutting off the water supply to everybody in the fort. Very pleasant. So, the father gives in. The father is imprisoned in Agra Fort. Now, Murad, this is just a month later, Murad, the youngest son, who, is, uh, who is in been made the deal with the wrongs to help him become the emperor. Now they're about to win, right? And they're kind of celebrating after a battle, and Murad, the younger brother, gets drunk. Big mistake. While he's drunk, his brother double-crosses him and has him put in prison uh, in the Gwalior Fort. So then uh, Shuja, in January 1965, Shuja attacks his brother, uh, but is defeated and he retreats, okay? In August of 1659, and Roshanara is supposed to be behind this one too, the, the, the Machiavellian princess. Dara is executed, and his head is delivered to Shah Jahan wrapped in a turbot. This is, this is Shah Jahan's John the Baptist moment. His, his daughter, Roshanara is really mad at Dara for lots of reasons. She's really, she's really mad at Jahanara for, really reason, for a lot of reasons. Those are the two oldest kids. So she tells Arangzeb this is the story. We don't know whether it's true or not, because, you know, people sell all kinds of stories about her. But anyway, uh, she tells Arangzeb that unless Dara is dead, you know, he'll never be able to hold on to the empire. And she insisted that he cut off his head and wrap it up very nicely in a turban and then have it delivered to the father. So the father knows they mean business. Uh, And that was his favorite son. So so he sits down to dinner, and they, they have a nicely wrapped present for him, and he opens the present, and that's what it is. Um, and he said that he went, he, he went into a stupor for three days uh, afterwards. Um, he was already ill. So, so pleasant, very pleasant. Uh, in the spring of the next year, Shuja is, starts to lose, so he retreats to Tanda, and then he retreats to Dhaka, which is in Bengal, which, where he used to have his governorship, and then he knows he can't, he's being chased. He knows he can't even do that. So he escapes to the king of Arakan, who was somebody who was his like, neighbor next door while he was running uh, the Bengal. And so he knew him very well. And he figured he'd done him all kinds of favors and he would you know, get help there. So he goes there. The, the king is impressed because he comes with a half a dozen camels loaded with gold and jewels. They'd never seen any you know amount of supply of wealth that much well the king is impressed and he also thinks that shuja is going to eventually win and push back against the Rangzeb, and he's on his side but as time goes by and shuja doesn't go anywhere and uh, he, he begins to rethink this thing you know it's like you know a deposed shah coming to your town you know it's going to cause you problems right we we, we had that problem uh, a while back too you know you want to help him? He's sick, uh, but it's going to cost you a lot. So the Arakan king begins to get suspicious. So he starts to say, to to, to push his, his limits a little bit. He says to Shuja, uh, "I'd like to marry your daughter." Shuja says, "You're not royal enough to marry my daughter. You know, just forget it. You're you're ridiculously much lower than I am on the royal on the royal scale. You know, uh, how can you even? I'm, I'm I'm outraged that you would even bring this up." so outraged that he decides to overthrow the king, which the king finds out about, stops, kills uh, Shuja, kills all of his sons, and then his wife and two of the daughters commit suicide, and then the third daughter is forced to join the harem where she dies of grief in a short amount of time. And Arangzab, their brother, is totally outraged at this wanton destruction of his royal blood, which I find fairly ironic. Uh, (laughs) If he didn't pay that guy to do that, I don't know what really happened, right? Um, He he makes another comment, too. At the end of his life, he's 88, and his youngest sister, the one who hadn't really had anything to do with this, dies at about 75 years of age, so he's the last of the children. And he he complains bitterly that he's now the last of the children of Shah Jahan and Mumtaz Mahal that's still living. And you think, he killed five of them. (laughs) You know? How do you expect him to reach old age with you if, if, if that 's what you 've done? but anyway so so uh, the last one to die was the youngest who had spent three years in, in the, the prison in Gwalior Fort um, and he died of poison, um, and some suspect Arangza. Uh, i don 't know why they would be that way, but um, one postscript there 's Rashanara, you know this she helped him Jahanara. Uh, After all this goes on, it takes about four or five years. The father's in prison the whole time. She gave up all of her wealth and her her palace and everything, her businesses and everything, and went to take care of her father and lived with her father for the last nine years of his life, making sure that he was as comfortable as possible. And so she, when he died, um, she was probably around 50 years old, something like that. And the Roshanara, while that was going on, uh, the, the princess Jehanara, after her mother died, was made the, the uh, most important woman in the, in the, uh, in the empire. You know, a, a specific title for princesses that are now in charge because the mother isn't there. Um, and, and this other daughter wanted that title, among many other things. So she made all these deals of the wrongs up, and she was given that title when he became emperor so she's now in charge but she's still mad that Jahannara is living she's mad about a lot of things um and she does all kinds of palace intrigue which we will you know not go into the details about because it's you know just think the medici you know uh, <laughs> same same old same old and uh but she she overplays her cards the was so happy with her for helping to make him emperor and everything that you know, he, she had a lot of leeway but only five or six years after he took over Um, he had her imprisoned um, and 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 kept away from the fort. And even after that period of time, she still was so obnoxious that three years later he had her poisoned in in a very nasty way. Um, And so she also died Um, probably. I mean, he didn't take credit for that one either, but we're quite sure about that. So and uh, Professor Asher used another version of the same picture. I think this is a nice picture which kind of captures the passions of of this man. Um, Because he, as I said, architecture, he loved architecture. He loved his wife. Um, They had, you know, I think it's important to remember that they had a kind of happy, successful life. All the sons did well. Everything was going along for at least 20 years before the tensions started building up, as they realized. And, you know, as I said, a lot like the Hunger Games. Each of the sons knew if they didn't win, they're going to be dead, most likely. That's, that's the way it worked. So um, once the cards started being played, it, it took about three years for all of those machinations to go back and forth. But uh, Arangzeb won. Now, when Arangzeb won, he, he eventually became, you know, I mean, he ruled for 50 years. Um, he had memorized the whole Quran when he was younger. Uh, he was a very strict Islamist. He, one of the things he didn't like about the sister that helped him out was that she lived licentiously, and he thought that that was naughty. Um, I mean, all the cruelty, maybe well, that was all right, but, but the fact that she lived naughtily was, was not so good. Um, but he also expanded the empire to its greatest extent, uh, as I said at the beginning. Uh, when he was finished, it, was the, it had one quarter of the world's GNP in it. It had 160 million people. Uh, it, was, it was the most powerful and, and richest empire, which it was around the time from Shah Jahan all the way through the end of his sons. But uh, you can, right after that, the British started moving in on lots of different areas and started to pick away at everything. But on his deathbed, you know, family, politics, and architecture. And here's his daughter, uh, a little bit young in the picture, but she's around 50 years old, taking care of him as he wistfully looks at the Taj Mahal, and you can, you can see in the picture him thinking all those years, you know, we had, we had 19 years together making our family. We were young. We, we were moving up in the world. You know, everything went well. When I became emperor, we had, you know, only three years together before you died, you know, before his wife died. But then he had another 24 years at the top of his game um, and his children growing older and getting good at everything. And, disappeared disappeared gave him a lot to meditate on so uh that's that's the story of Shah jahan and his family and his passions and so now now it's time for the q a um so if you have any questions uh, you can turn them in and if there's anything let's see if anything has arrived over uh let's see uh One question from Ann Dickinson. Did Shah Jahan have children with any of his other wives? Uh, Let me, I have to get to it. Um, If he did, were any of them involved in the battles for succession? Uh, None of them were involved in the battles for succession, but he did have children from other wives. Um, Several of them died early. He often only had one or two children from other wives. Professor Asher, do you have any other information on the children? Not really, no. Okay. Um, So if there are other questions, that's fine. I have... A couple of questions that came in early, and I I wanted to ask this question because I I have been, you know, for both Humanities West and Commonwealth Club, I've been doing this for about 20 years, and I have never had a question quite like this one. It came in about a week ahead of time. Um, And it's about the value of walking in another person's shoes. Uh, MMY writes, I have inside information that Prime Minister Modi of India in a previous life, was one of Shah Jahan's chief ministers. That is, that he was a Muslim just 4,400 years ago. My question is, do you think if Prime Minister Modi were to turn within and recognize that as personally true, that that would inspire him to improve his political policies towards the hundreds of millions of Muslims in India? (laughs) Just thought I'd ask it, you know. Um, Anyway, that, uh, that's quite a question. Uh, I'm sure you don't have an answer for that one, right, Catherine? But
0: well, I could say I would hope so.
1: Yeah, I would hope so, exactly. <laughs> we would hope so. Thanks. Uh, here's another question. Uh, this is a question about Shah Jahan's daughter, Jahanara, uh, and her love for her father, as there was a lot of political gossip at the time about that. Did you, have you read any of that, uh, the gossip about uh, then because I think it was I think it was spread by the by the uh, Yes. Yeah.
0: It's yeah. come to that of Europeans. Yeah. Um that are picking up local gossip that who knows how true it is. It's probably not true. Yeah. Um she really was a very devoted devout Sufi. She belonged to a Sufi order. Yeah. Um it's hard to believe that. But certainly there was local gossip, but you know, there's always it's sort of like, you know, these
1: film magazines. Who knows? It's true. Right, right. The, the, the gossip was that there was an incestuous relationship between, right. uh, between uh, Shah Jahan and his daughter when, they were, yeah. when he was in prison. Um, I think it's important to remember not only she was a, a, a devout Sufi and had lived her life very responsibly, but in addition to that, he was seriously ill and 70 years old or so, you know, about 70 years old. And in addition to that, um, she was in her fifties, and uh, it's just unlikely uh, to be true. So anyway, uh, the question is: Is there any historical basis for the charges, or is this a case of politically motivated slander? Um, a case of true love transcending gossip. You know that, that the daughter, the daughter was nice to him uh, to the end, and gave up everything. Uh, some daughters will do that. They don't. They don't need. They don't need any extra motivation. Right? Uh, another one's great. Uh, Third question. Uh, This question is about Shah Jahan's son squabbling over his throne when he became sick. Sick, yeah. Some things never change, do they? Uh, This writer was clearly feeling biblical when he wrote this, I thought, because this is what he said. But what will it profit a son if he gains the whole Mughal empire but loses his father's love? And even if he were to regain that love in the future, to lose it then once again? Is that not self-destructive folly? Well... That's that's an interesting question, um, but again, that's just that's just a, a rhetorical question. So, um, so one of the questions about the art of portraits: uh, How do we have portraits of people in the Mughal em- from the Mughal Empire when they were forbidden uh, in Muslim cultures? Um,
0: oh, that's completely incorrect. They're not forbidden. Right. The idea in Islam is that in a religious context, there's a very strong prohibition against um, including images of zoomorphic or anthropomorphic um, beings. But even the Quran does not say that outright. It is said in a somewhat roundabout manner. There is no prohibition whatsoever whatsoever in a secular context um, to discourage the depiction of of people or animals, anything like that. Now, you might have some particular people that look at it this way. I mean, after all, Orhan Parmuk's book, um, the Red Book, is really about that sort of thing. But this is the way somebody interprets something. It is not... Um, dogma. It is not mm-hmm. It is not what is set out at all. So having portraiture is no problem.
1: Right. The The, the issue about the women's portraiture was because of the rules of the harem and, and keeping them right.
0: private. Right. Yeah, with... I probably didn't make that clear. Yeah. I just assumed that since I showed so many men's portraits, that wasn't going to be an issue. Yeah. But yeah, it has more to do with keeping women secluded and um, not having their image shown publicly. But there's no reason why we can't have private portraiture of important females and I think we're beginning to recognize that
1: great now there's a couple more questions and then we'll wrap this up I know we've run a couple of minutes over here so uh, who is responsible for the preservation or upkeep of the Taj Mahal right now Do you know right
0: now it's the archaeological survey of India which is an important branch of the government mm-hmm. they protect thousands of monuments throughout India Um, There has been a dispute um, relatively recently where the Muslim Vakt board, that is the trust board, wished to take over. Um, It went to the Supreme Court of India where it was struck down. While ideally it might seem nice Mm -hmm. for a Vakt board to take over, you have to realize that they have no training whatsoever. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maintaining a structure like the Taj Mahal is a massive responsibility and uh, it has to do with everything from controlling pollution there's a major refinery uh, upstream Mm -hmm. from where the Taj is to uh, controlling tourists to terrorist threats to maintaining grounds um, and making sure increasingly because um, the Taj is part of Uh, um, uh, UNESCO uh, monuments, uh, they have to make sure that um, vehicles that pollute are not near it. Um, it, It's it's extraordinarily complex. I mean, we could spend an hour minimum just talking about it. But it is the Archaeological Survey of India.
1: Great. Um, Do we know how many times the Taj Mahal has been looted or how many times it's been restored? There's probably dozens of each.
0: Well, we know it was looted by the a, a group known as the Jots in the 18th century. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, we know, uh, and I, I think, I think it really, it's been restored a number of times, and it's mm-hmm. some of the restorations pretty, pretty controversial. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, that refinery up, up, up. Upstream is is a problem with pollution. Um, Marble, as you may know, is an absorbent stone. Those stones that are put into it are are a lot harder than the marble is. Mm -hmm. So marble absorbs things like soot and smoke. Mm -hmm. Um, It's been restored any number of times, but it's never been rebuilt or anything like that. It's been more treating stone... Uh, making sure the maintenance is that it's not gonna fall down or mm-hmm. things like that.
1: Um do you know if there are any descendants from the family uh, that that have anything to do with the Taj Mahal. Means?
0: Well the I mean the Mughal family was massive by the time uh eighteen fifty seven or eighteen fifty eight when it was really dissembled dismantled. There are people who claim that they're they are descended from the Mughals and it would right. make sense given how large it was. And one of the one of the gentlemen who spoke out um, against the Vaktor board um, mm. taking over this the the maintenance of the Taj was a descendant of the mm. Mughals, but none of them, they're all they they none of them are wealthy, none of them have yeah. any political thought. Um, they're fairly ordinary people.
1: Okay, great. Well thank you again, Professor Asher. Thank you very, very much <clears throat> So this is this is what we like to do at Humanities West. We like to bring you uh, an outstanding architectural achievement or artistic achievement in a historical time um, with a fascinating, you know, dramatic personal story. Uh, Not many that can compete with either the Taj Mahal or the story behind it. So so ends another event uh, at the Commonwealth Club in its 120th year of enlightened discussion and it for Humanities West in its 40th year. Thank you very much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate.